Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host. You may recognize me or hear my voice as somewhat memorable if you've been subscribing to our other podcast on Leadership with Scott Miller. After 200 interviews, we realized that some of the most interesting insights came from those, perhaps not from big celebrity or household names, but came from people just like you and I that had had amazing careers, relatable journeys. And so we decided to replicate the insights from that podcast with this new podcast each week where I have fascinating conversations with people from the C-suite. Not just CEOs, but CMOs and CIOs and CTOs and CHROs and anything beyond just the C. And today we are honored to be in the presence of the CEO of AARP, Joanne Jenkins, who is joining us from their office in Washington, D.C. Joanne, welcome to our podcast. Hi, Scott. I'm delighted to be here with you today. Gosh, Thank you for a, having me. What a gift to have you. Thank you for investing a half an hour or so in our audience, which is, of course, a worldwide audience, not just here in the U.S., but people at all levels of their career, all ages, people who are perhaps entering their career, and those who may be in the crescendo, what are perhaps the best years of their life and their journey, and people who are in either the great you know, resignation or the great reevaluation or whatever it is you want to call it this week, the great comeuppance, you know, I hear different names for every podcast and blog mm -hmm. that I read right now. But Joanne, what I'd like to do today is maybe have you recreate your journey. Because one of the things that I have found most interesting about researching you is although you are now the CEO of one of the most influential organizations, associations of people on the globe, AARP, I'll bet that you didn't set out as a college freshman to become the president or CEO of an association or collection of, of um, uh, volunteers and like-minded people. Would you take as long as it takes to walk us through your education and journey so people can get a sense for what your path was like to the C-suite? Sure, I would love to. Uh, I think most people are surprised when I say I grew up uh, in a very small town in uh, about 16 miles southwest of Mobile, Alabama. Uh, you know, I grew up there with my two brothers and one sister, uh, attended public schools uh, at all levels uh, in middle school and high school, uh, and then went on to college at a Jesuit college uh, in Alabama, uh, Spring Hill College. And as part of uh, graduation, I was a political science and finance major. And as part of the uh, graduation exercise, you had to do an internship. And I was fortunate enough that a friend of a friend of a friend in the family uh, invited me to come to Washington, D.C. to intern. And I was the first uh, African-American intern that the Republican Party ever had. And so I came up uh, in the summer of uh, 79 and interned back when Bill Brock was the chairman of the RNC. And uh, if you know something about politics in Alabama, you don't register along party lines. You can vote in the Democratic primary or the Republican primary. And so everybody in this very uh, close-knit community that I grew up with, you know, knew the local congressman as, you know, uh, he lived down the, down the road or down the street from us. So I came to Washington, interned, um, went back to Spring Hill and uh, graduated in May of 1980 uh, and went to work for uh, <clears throat> Alabama Power, uh, which was uh, in Alabama at the time, the best place to work in terms of stability uh, there. Uh, I got my first two paychecks and I came to Washington uh, to visit friends that I had met over the summer. 
They offered me a job, and I've been here since August 1 of 1980 uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, and I had the opportunity then to work on the, uh, the Reagan campaign. So I worked uh, at that time in the summer of 80 uh, for Elizabeth Dole, uh, who uh, fortunately for me has been a friend and a mentor for now uh, over 40 years as I started my career here in Washington. But I came there, worked on the campaign, eventually after the campaign ended up at the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And so most of my colleagues here at AARP will tell you, uh, I still have a love for housing and how important it is for us to make sure that there is safe, affordable housing for people all over this country. And so I think I got that from my, my roots of spending five years uh, at HUD, uh, then had the opportunity to uh, just go right across the street to the Department of Transportation, where Elizabeth Dole was then the Secretary of Transportation, uh, and she hired me to be one of her uh, uh, advisors. And so I was there with her working on women's issues, on minority business contracting issues. Little did I know we would again hook up some 10, 15 years later, did a small stint, uh, you know, got married, had two kids, planned on staying at home, and that lasted about uh, six weeks after my uh, last child, uh, and had the opportunity to come back uh, into government and worked at the Department of Agriculture uh, in the uh, advocacy department there. And so, you know, when the change of the elections came in, uh, I went back home, was doing some consulting work, uh, and then they asked me to apply for a position over at the Library of Congress, who at the time, uh, Dr. James Billington was the librarian, uh, the library was part of the legislative branch of government. You know, I had said to them I didn't know much about the library other than my own local public library. Uh, as it turns out, I agreed to go there to help with some management issues of, on a one-year kind of let's see how this works out. And 15 years later, uh, went up the ranks from uh, being his advisor to chief of staff to the chief operating officer when I left the library. Uh, and then, uh, lo and behold, you know, had enough government service to retire, but wasn't uh, old enough. Uh, well, I was, I did have, I had enough years, but I wasn't old enough to retire. Uh, and AARP uh, contacted me about uh, seeing if I wanted to be on uh, a new board that they had, uh, what, what we call AARP services is where all of our for-profit work is done. And so I joined the AARP Services uh, Board of Directors and later became its chair. Um, did that while I was working at the Library of Congress, ended up uh, going off that board, and then AARP contacted me uh, sometime later to ask me what I consider applying to be head of their foundation. And so I uh, fortunately applied for that position and was uh, selected. And so I left uh, with 25 years of government service to come over to head of uh, AARP Foundation uh, in 2010. Uh, in 2014, the, my predecessor asked if I would join him on the AARP uh, C4 side of the house to be the chief operating officer. And 
to build out AERP strategy for the next 10 years. Uh, and little did I know at the time, but uh, within the year, the, the board had asked me to be the CEO. And so I have, uh, I've spent 25 years uh, in government, um, you know, and now another 10 plus years here at AARP, uh, in addition to being uh, on their uh, board of directors for their for-profit company. Joanne, thank you for taking the time to walk us through that. It's a remarkable journey, a lot to unpack there. First of all, I'm a massive fan of Secretary Dole and her former husband, or her past, late, late husband, late husband, not her former husband, her late husband, Senator Robert Dole, a hero of mine. And if I'm not mistaken, wasn't Secretary Dole the first ever female member of a presidential cabinet level? If I'm not mistaken, she was she was she was the first female to ever head a branch of the military service, which was the Coast Guard. Interesting. And then she went on to become, I think, the CEO of the Red Cross, didn't she? Remarkable. And then she ran it was in the Senate and um, just selfless servants to our nation. I can see why you have become friends and have them as as colleagues and mentors. What an amazing journey you've had. Uh, I'm guessing if I did the math right, you were at Alabama Power for four weeks. You took two paychecks, uh, right? About that. That's about right. That. <laughs> so we've all had that moment in our life where we had an opportunity, but something else happened. Perhaps it was a transition figure or not the right scenario. You mentioned how stable and how exciting it was to be there. What happened to you that ignited your genius in Washington versus with this great employer in Alabama? Well, I think for me, uh, you know, as I've been asked this question, uh, a similar kind of question in the past, everything that I've done has really always been about service to others. So even, you know, at the at the Department of Housing about how do we provide, you know, safe, affordable housing at transportation? How do we make sure that transportation is going into neighborhoods uh, that are underserved? Uh, you know, the work here that we do at uh, AARP, so much focused on on, uh, for us, the 50 plus and their families, but particularly in our AARP Foundation, those who are low income vulnerable. And I think, you know, while uh, I can't say intentional as I look back and think about all of those positions, all of it has been about how do you make life better for others who may not be as fortunate as, uh, as I have been. Well, it's too bad D.C. doesn't have a Senate seat because you might be a great senator from D.C. So <laughs> look for that. Uh, Joanne, I think I've heard you say in the past that ageism is the last permissible form of discrimination. Maybe that's not the right quote, but I think generally you've got passion about that. Yeah. Obviously, your association with AARP, I'm a member, by the way, 53. Thank you very Good. much. Uh, what can leaders and organizations do to address ageism to the extent it is, in fact, still a discriminatory issue inside organizations? Well, I think, you know, uh, you know, I think part of the conversation I was having when I said that was talking about comedians and that it's okay uh, still to make jokes about old people uh, or people feeling uncomfortable about saying next week I'm going to be 64. Uh, you know, I, how do we get people to, you know, to think differently about it's not the age or a particular number, but how you're feeling in your life. And, you know, whether that's in the workplace or whether that's in your social life or, you know, in your community, how do we get people to value for who you are and what you bring to the table and not necessarily, you know, define someone by a, a number that, you know, she's 64 or she's 70 or, or, or whatever the number is. And so, you know, uh, 
over the last 20 years, I call it the, the isms. We've, you know, we no longer uh, allow somebody to say something about somebody who's gay or somebody whose uh, religion that may be different from us. But it's still okay to say, to make that little funny joke about, yeah. oh, you can't remember anything? Is it your age? And sort of, you know, and so mine is to sort of bring attention to my colleagues and the general public and friends and everyone to say, when you hear somebody say something like that that's ageist, to stop it in the moment and say, now, now, why did you say that? Well, you know, I know from my own young adult children that uh, they, they are as forgetful as I am, and it has nothing to do with their age. Uh, you know, either they're choosing not to hear me or, you know, they're just doing something else and not paying attention. And that's not to say that uh, some decline comes with age, but it is to, to value people and what they bring to the table and not define somebody by number. In fact, Joanne, are you finding that the pandemic has had a, uh, a positive or a maybe perhaps a diminishing impact on your members as it, as it relates to their viability, their sustainability in the workforce? <coughs> I mean, I am one of your members, so I speak about yeah. my own generation. You hear a lot of people that are leaving the workforce for lots of reasons, right? They're, they're leaving because they want to go do something more passionate. They had a, a relative who passed away from the virus and their life is now more, you know, meaningful and apparent to them. Perhaps their home doubled in price or their portfolio raised and they could retire early or do other things. What are you finding are the, is the impact on my generation and perhaps multiple generations beyond me post-pandemic, ideally post-pandemic? Well, I've, I've seen, I think, both positive and negative. I'll deal with the negative first and say, you know, uh, here in the U.S., we've had nearly 900,000 people who have died from COVID, and well over 95% of those have been over the age of 50. And so the impact on the people that we serve and our membership and their families have been dramatic. And it has increased our work and our advocacy at uh, not only the national level, but with governors and mayors all across this country to bring attention to uh, those who are housed in some kind of nursing facility or need some kind of care, uh, who live in rural areas who may not have access to vaccines and all of the medical equipment and devices that they might need. And so that part has really, really uh, uh, had us transform the way we deliver our services around the, uh, the country and to the people we serve during this COVID. On a positive side, you know, we had in our strategy, you know, a three to five year strategy to let's take on this issue pre-COVID of getting our members uh, really up to speed on the use of technology uh, to be able to use uh, telemedicine, uh, telehealth and those kind of things. Uh, so that three to five year strategy uh, you know, had to be condensed into 90 days and so many folks. So if you're, if you're in that 50 to 65 range, you're, you're, you're not a digital native, but you're using technology. I often tell people at home, when I'm working at home, I have my computer, I have my laptop, I have my iPad and I have my two cell phones. So I have five devices on my desk, uh, when I'm working at home, uh, at 64. But what we did see, particularly in that 65 to 80 group, the, the, 
uh, learning and the use of technology to learn how to Zoom or use Microsoft Teams to, to have those virtual conversations with friends and families to address isolation or to have a medical appointment with so many people couldn't uh, actually physically go to the doctor's office. And the uh, ad uh, adoption of the use of technology came quick and swift, and I don't think we're going back. Uh, and so, you know, COVID in a way pushed us uh, and our members pushed us to say, no, I need to learn this because I want to continue living my life. And, you know, who would have ever thought two years from the beginning of COVID, we would still be in this situation. So that's one of the positive pieces. And I would just say also for here, for us at AARP, you know, we have our offices in all 50 states and, uh, you know, some 200 plus communities around the country uh, and used to being in community doing you know, fraud events or shredding events or some kind of healthcare forum, and we couldn't do that. And so we we had to figure out, you know, how do we connect with our members, you know, in this COVID pandemic environment. And so we launched uh, the virtual community center. And so a state office, and this was the perfect example that launched this, you know, our state office in Illinois was holding a behind the scenes uh, uh, program on the Chicago Symphony. And we were able to offer that program around the country for any of the other mm. state offices who want to tune in. Mm. And on many occasions, we had from 30,000 people to upward of 100,000 people signing in on programs that our state offices were putting on, which their audience would normally be maybe five or 600 people on any given day could have been 10, 20, 30,000 yeah. people or yeah. up. So a good way for a COVID made us find a solution for that. It's a great example about the ingenuity and the opportunity that did come out of the pandemic uh, without diminishing the carnage that happened to nearly yeah. a million people, not to mention all those who survived but had loved ones die or businesses fail or their, uh, their lives greatly impacted. Joanne, remind me how many members there are of AARP. So we have nearly 38 million members across the U.S., I mean, it's remarkable. Uh, and here's why I'm asking that question. So you're the leader of a, an association and organization with 38 million members. You clearly are an advocate for their needs, whether it be legislative or social policy or funding or access or education, protection. Uh, here's why I'm asking the question. One of my favorite photographs of all time is a photograph of the Catholic Pope, Pope John Paul II. And he's in the Vatican, you know, in the Reagan years, 20, 30, 30 plus years ago. And he's on the phone, like an old rotary phone that has a cord. And I remember thinking, who does the Pope call? I mean, really, I mean, <laughs> who does the Pope call? And, and I thought, what a great question to ask you. Don't mean to compare it to the Pope. But however, when you're calling someone, when Joanne Jenkins picks up the phone and she's calling someone outside of your staff or your friends and family, who are you calling what are you trying to get done? What influence are you, are you calling governors or the president or the, the chamber of commerce or the head of Medicare? Who are you calling to get stuff done for your members? I'm calling anybody who we need, Democrat, Republican, White House, governors, congressmen, senators, that we need to get our uh, position heard uh, and uh, attended to. And I think 
you know, more so in the last uh, year or two, it, uh, it's been members of Congress uh, in the House and Senate as we've, you know, tried desperately to make sure in this COVID environment that Medicare and Medicaid recipients have access to, uh, you know, PPE uh, and all of the different medicines that they need related to COVID, particularly if they were in nursing homes. I'm picking up the phone calling uh, uh, heads of other nonprofit organizations who work closely with us uh, as we've really tried to address some of the needs in the communities. Uh, uh, we also have a program here where, you know, every quarter I pick up the phone and call some 10 to 12 members uh, who either love us or hate us. Uh, and uh, it's always a surprising, particularly with those who say uh, we could be doing better uh, for, for me to give them a call and say, uh, this is Joanne Jenkins, the CEO of AARP, and I got your letter, and I just wanted to follow up and tell you that I, you know, I heard what you said. So uh, it's not unusual. I think one of the things that uh, uh, I think people say about me and my style is that uh, I'm not afraid to ask the question, uh, and I'm not afraid to give the answer, even if you don't want to hear what the answer is. And so uh, uh, that's been part of my repertoire uh, as I've spent my uh 30, 40 years in Washington to say, you know, I am a straight shooter. Uh, I am, you know, uh, transparent about what it is we're trying to do here at AARP. Uh, and, and what's so important is not only do we have those 38 million members, but we also have 60,000 people around the country who are AARP volunteers. We call, our, we call them our army of volunteers who go out in community or either go to uh, state legislatures or up on Capitol Hill, if need be, you know, to, to make sure that their voices are, are heard, you know, around our policy positions, which uh, all almost always around health care or, you know, protecting and making sure that Social Security is going to be there in the future. But uh, yeah, I don't uh, uh, I don't mind talking on the phone eight to five. And then after that, I'm done. <laughs> I'm guessing when the phone rings, and it's Joanne Jenkins. Most members of Congress take the call, right? With 38 million members asking you to help advocate for their needs. Uh, and you've earned that reputation as a trusted leader. In fact, speaking of which, when did you first realize that you were a leader? Was it in your 20s or 40s? Or was it your first leadership? When did you finally feel comfortable that I am a leader of people and this is my calling and this perhaps is a gift that I've discovered, uncovered, even earned? Well, my sisters, my sister and brothers who are all eight, nine, and 10 years older than me would probably say from birth. Uh, but I would say that certainly uh, in, in high school, I was the uh, president of our high school, I think uh, in, in Theodore, Alabama, Theodore High School. Uh, we had less than 4% uh, of the school who happened to be African-American, and I was the first uh, African-American student council president that they ever had, uh, which was an elected position. Uh, I think, you know, leadership, uh, you know, I'm always been in a role of wanting to tell other people what to do, uh, whether that's, you know, giving <laughs> advice or counsel. But, you know, it's, uh, 
I, I, for me, it's just a way that I am, not necessarily thinking that, oh, I want to be the CEO of A or P. Uh, that was never uh, in my thinking when I came to A or P. When I came to A or P, it was about, um, I've always wanted to run my own company. I've always wanted to have my own nonprofit. And Never had I imagined it would be AARP's foundation to start with, uh, but the opportunity presented itself and I came here to do that. But in my mind for years, I had talked about either running my own company or running my own nonprofit uh, to be able to do something. Let's talk a bit about your actual leadership style. I mean, the fact of the matter is all of us as leaders, like you, I've been a leader of people for over 20 years, sometimes better than others. We all have supporters and we all have detractors, you and me included. As you think about the people in your career that have been your detractors, they did not like your leadership style. They did not like your interpersonal skills. They didn't like your leadership competencies for whatever reason. When you think about the detractors, how would they describe what it's like to work for Joanne Jenkins? (laughs) Well, I would say that uh Supporters and detractors would say she's honest, uh, she's trustworthy, uh, she, she doesn't say things uh, that she doesn't mean, uh, and that uh, she gives you the information you need to hear, not necessarily what you want to hear. And I think that, uh, and I would also say, you know, to make sure whatever it is you're communicating, that it's clear and concise and that a person who might be at the lowest levels of the organization can understand it just as clearly as perhaps your executive team at the top of the organization. Because for me, uh, leaders are throughout the organization and they don't necessarily have to have a title to have impact, to have a following. I think I learned that uh, most clearly when I was the chief operating officer at the Library of Congress. And I think we had either four or five unions. Uh, And so uh, one of my jobs was to negotiate the union contracts uh, to be able to go through. And just thinking about, you know, the different unions and their different clientele within the Library of Congress uh, and the wants and needs uh, and different perspectives of each one of those groups. And then really being able to have a, uh, a clear conversation, a trusting conversation with them about Hey, this is what this is what we can give on, and this is where you know we can't make any adjustments to. And I thought I think that you know I left the library I think in a place uh, that I'm very proud of in terms of the management uh, improvements that we made there, but most importantly the relationships with the unions, uh, so that they could understand this was really all about how do we make the Library of Congress better to be able to do that. And so fast forward coming here to AARP, so we don't have unions. Unions, but you know we have about 25, 2,600 people on staff around the country. A large part of them are advocates. Are uh, you know they advocate for the difficult things on the Hill in the state legislatures, uh, and they don't hesitate to tell me what they're thinking. I I often use the example that. We, uh, two years ago, we did an employee survey, which we do every year, but this this one in particular, uh, and the the ratings were off the roof. They were terrific in terms of 85, 90% engagement and whatever, and sort of going through. 
And yet there were 5,000 comments. And so it was like, okay, so they're happy, but they still have 5,000 uh, 5, comments that they want to make sure that I, mm. that I hear. And, and of course, I read through all of them as, as well as uh, my executive team to, to make sure that we were listening to uh, our staff uh, and, and seeing it from their point of view to see if, in fact, there were things that we could address. Uh, thank you for that. And take that a step further. I'm sure like me and others that have been in the C-suite, I spent a decade at Franklin Covey's uh, C-suite as the chief marketing officer, lots of successes and several failures, some big failures, some less. I think they've all ended up pretty well, you know, a ticked and tied. But can you think of uh, the, your biggest lesson in your career that came from a decision you made that was the wrong decision or perhaps something you said or did that in hindsight perhaps you could have done differently. Is there a lesson you might impart to the rest of us that are either on the way to the C-suite or looking to be in management or leadership or perhaps maybe to be more forgiving of those who are? What lesson would you share that you've learned from a mistake or, a, or a, some introspection on your own journey? Mm-hmm. Well, I would, I would say without, uh, without necessarily pointing to a particular program, uh, uh, I asked my predecessor before he left, is there something you want me to look after for you? Uh, knowing that, you know, a new CEO coming in, there are going to be changes. Uh, and uh, he uh, indicated a particular program to me, which wasn't necessarily my favorite program. Uh, and I really thought at the time that we should terminate the program, but, uh, you know, I had given my word that I would look after it, uh, and I and I let that program live on for another year, trying to see how we could make it work. And I often, uh, you know, reflect back on that, and in my conversations with the board, when I finally went to the board of directors to say I'm going to close down this program, and here's the reasons why, and financial and, and those kind of things of, okay, uh, you know, that was me giving my word that I'm going to look after this program, even though at the time I didn't think it was the best way or the place where A or P needed to, to, to be. And so I think it, that was hard to be able to sort of, you know, not be able to make that program work because, you know, it was a great idea, but it wasn't the right time for us to be in that particular program to be able to do. And so I often look back on that uh, and think, oh, okay, what were the lessons learned of, you know, making that commitment, but but taking an extra year to get to what I what I, my gut was telling me was the right answer uh, to make sure that I was, uh, you know, holding up my commitment to, to, make, uh, to make sure this program survived. Uh, the other thing I would say is when I first came on the AARP uh, as a CEO, I had been in that chief operating officer role here and also at the Library of Congress, used to knowing every particular detail uh, as much uh, as I could and at AERP, I think I'm still the only leader who's been the uh, chairman of the board for the for-profit company, the president of the foundation, and the CEO and COO of AERP, the parent company. Uh, and uh, I stepped into the CEO's role in the board. The board rightly said, the only thing we're worried about is will you be able to let go uh, of the day-to-day details because they want you, you they wanted me to be that external facing CEO and building out relationships uh, and uh, 
I, a former board member who's no longer with us, I, I called him up one day and I said, so can you give me, it's a year into my CEO, uh, <clears throat> uh, how am I doing? And he said, oh my God, Joanne, you're doing great. You know every detail. There is one thing you could do. When the board says you might want to do this, instead of saying, actually, I looked into that six months ago and it doesn't make sense, the financials don't work and blah, 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 you could just say, that's a good idea, let me think about it. Uh, so that we know you're listening to us, even though you might know the answer to be able to go through it. Uh, and I often think about that and I often use that example of, you know, you don't have to, as a CEO, you don't have to know every detail in the organization. You have to have a good team around you so that you have confidence in them that they know how to run those areas. And so for me, it was that first year learning to let go, putting the right people in place uh, and, uh, and allowing them to grow. Who knew you'd be giving us marriage and family parenting advice on this interview? Because that's actually great uh, marriage advice, what you just said, it, right? Indeed, As opposed indeed. to me just discounting what my wife says on something because I know better. <laughs> so I appreciate your vulnerability around that. That's actually superb advice for all of us. Uh, Joanne, as we end our, our time today, you're not a physician. You're not you know, an expert on the biology of aging, but I'm guessing you have some expertise on what it does mean to age well. And as you shepherd you know, nearly 40 million members like me and perhaps those who are, of course, older than I am, I think, is the, is the age 50 to be a member of AARP? Is that right? Yes. yes. Yeah, so a uh, member I'm proud standing for three years. What, what are some pieces of advice you would give us to aging well? in terms of maybe not just the physicality and mental, but in terms of our contribution and how we live our life in <clears throat> crescendo, as our founder, Dr. Covey, would call it, what's some advice you would send us off with? Well, so, you know, uh, the, the data would tell us that if, in fact, uh, you, have, you live well, exercise, eat well, uh, have access to good health care, the probability of you living well past your 80s and 90s is quite high. In fact, the fastest growing age group in this country is people over the 80, age of 85, and the second is over the age of 100. So if you think about it, you're gonna have that 100-year lifespan, uh, and it's you know adolescence, it's, it's college, it's uh, you know getting that first job, getting married, working, and then retiring. If you're thinking about how we would traditionally look at that in those five phases, you know, we have to rethink that 100-year lifespan because it is more likely that you're going to have five or six different jobs or perhaps two or three different careers than to have one job at one company for 30 years. And so, you know, what I always say is that, you know, you need to be doing something that you feel passionate about, that it's not, uh, it's not a job, it's a passion, it's a career. Uh, and we know that people who have purpose and meaning in life and people who are doing that something that they love live seven to eight years longer than someone who doesn't. And so making sure that you're in a, a, a role, whether it's working in a corporation or a nonprofit or owning your own nonprofit and doing work that supports so many others, uh, I think that's what's key, along with, uh, you know, a sensible 
diet and exercise and access to good health. The worst thing that we uh, that could happen would be that you would live to this 90 or, or 100 and in poor health and not have the financial means uh, to take care of yourself. And so we want people to stay in the workforce for as long as they want and, you know, save early so that they don't outlive their financial means, but more importantly, to do something that you feel passionate about. Joanne Jenkins, CEO of AARP, thank you for joining us. If I ever happen to run for Congress, I can assure you I'll be taking your phone calls. So I appreciate you pouring into all of our viewers and listeners around the world today. And it's, it's, it's remarkable to hear that some of the fastest growing age groups in our nation, I'm guessing also in the world, are you know, the, the older population as we yep. think of them. And you've given me some food for thought around how I tend to be much more respectful to people of different genders and races and sexual orientations and backgrounds and religions, and I need to show that same level of respect to those who might be different ages, older and younger than myself. So I appreciate you, you and your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you back here next week for a new discussion on C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller.